Good evening and welcome everyone. It is officially Juneteenth 2020. I'm your host, as always, The Pody. You are listening to a milestone episode number 100. It is kind of crazy to be sitting here producing and recording episode 100. To think 100 weeks ago, roughly, I started this podcast. Wow, um, I've come a long way, and we're still going strong even through this pandemic. And it's very eerie because I saw a tweet from Adrian Wojnarowski or Woj um, from earlier this morning. It has officially been 100 days since the NBA suspended its season. So imagine that. 100 days ago, they suspended the season. Today being my 100th episode. Very weird. Also happens to be Juneteenth, which, to be quite frank with you all, I am going to admit this. I have no trouble at all admitting this. Um, I'm very ignorant as a white man when it comes to... um the race inequality, etc. in this country, the systemic racism. I'm a little bit ignorant to, not ignorant to it isn't a good word, but I don't have the perspective being a white man, etc., etc., right? So I will admit, I'll be the first one to admit, I did not know what Juneteenth was. I'm sorry, I didn't. And I think that's okay because a lot of people didn't know, um what it was and not okay in the sense that uh we shouldn't celebrate it because absolutely um reading about it now I cannot believe that it's not a national holiday I think they passed legislation years ago in Texas to make it a national holiday but for those of you that truly uh that most of you probably don't know what it is even as late as um Friday night to when I'm recording this on Juneteenth you've probably heard of it you sort of know what it is but I did some research for the people because that's what I do on the show, okay? And that's why you probably listen to it so you don't have to do your own research and have to look up stuff. So here it is. I'm going to break this down for you in a few sentences as best I can from what I gathered. Juneteenth is June 19th, 1865, when Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, to announce the end of the Civil War and slavery. Now, this was two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which officially ended the war and slavery on January 1st, 1863. So there are many theories for the two and a half year gap, the likeliest being the minimum number of Union troops in Texas to enforce the emancipation until General Granger arrived. So on June 19th, it was coined Juneteenth and became a holiday when family and friends gathered to celebrate and hold prayer services. Now, I think this is why it got lost in the fold all these years um, since. And I think it's because everybody views the Emancipation Proclamation from the two and a half years prior to Juneteenth on January 1st, 1863, when, when Lincoln signed that into law and ended slavery, they look at that as the end of slavery. But in fact, slavery was still going on in Texas at the time. And it wasn't until Gordon Granger, uh, Major Gordon, uh, General Gordon Granger, got there um, and officially denounced it and ended slavery then. So I think it's absolutely, and especially it's coming back now because of the protesting and the George Floyd murder and all of this other stuff that's coming about with, with, with systemic racism and the turmoil in this country with the, with the division and the race racism and all that stuff. So very cool. I just got myself a nice little history lesson today, and now I'm more woke and aware of what Juneteenth is, and I'm, and I'm proud of myself for, you know, taking the time to, to look this up and really study what it is, because I do, I want, I want to bridge this gap. I want to learn more about, uh, you know, 
the black people and, and uh, racism and, and all this good stuff because I, I will say this much and, and you know I, I have group chats with my friends and we joke about different things and, and prejudices and you know whatever same stuff that pretty much everybody will, will talk about and maybe joke about here or there that's probably a little insensitive at times and whatnot um, but I went to an extremely, extremely diverse high school. I've talked about that maybe in the last episode. I think it's one of the most diverse schools probably in America. I mean, it was a melting pot of every race, culture, religion, you name it. So I was exposed to this stuff from a very young age. I didn't grow up in Montana with five kids in my class that were all white and all looked like brothers and sisters, right? No, I had classes where to my left could be um, an Asian American, to my right could be, you know, a, a black student, um, in front of me could have been um, a Hispanic student, you, know, ex you name it, I had them all. So I had friends that were of different colors and races and creeds and religions and, and all that stuff. So to me, I've never seen or experienced racism because from where I, where I come from, everybody is friends with everybody. There's no real separation. Of course, you have your different maybe little cliques and schools and stuff where maybe the you know the Asian kids hang together or the blacks. But that really that was that could be very few and far between. That's more of like something you see on TV. Um, but truly, my school was very diverse and everybody pretty much meshed with everybody and there wasn't really one group that was by itself or anything like that so I think that's why I might be ignorant more so to maybe the deep south where it's more so segregated and was so for a much longer time or where you might go like excuse me DeMar DeRozan came out um with a with, with an interview I think today in Bleacher Report or somewhere and he spoke about how it was a culture shock when he went to USC. Uh, DeMar DeRozan, he's on the Spurs, was on the Raptors. He, and to me, that's like, really? In college? Like, you, excuse me, that was a culture shock? Like, you, like, to me, that just seems so weird because, again, I went to a diverse high school. Then I went to Rutgers, a extremely diverse school. And to think that he went to you know, Southern California. I'm not 100% sure where he grew up, from, grew up, but, um, you know, more than likely, I, I know DeMar DeRozan's back, backstory, so um, inner city kid, you know, probably went to a poor school and, and was surrounded by mostly black kids, right? And now he has to go off to Southern California, maybe a bunch of white kids, surfer dudes and all that stuff. And so to me, like, that's the ignorance that I speak of, like to just not even realizing that, wow, just somebody like that, a superstar basketball player who's going there to play basketball. And you don't realize that he's probably not used to being around so many, you know, different cultures because USC is diverse, but probably has a lot more demographically white people. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's just very interesting to to see these different perspectives and such. Um, so I don't want to give too much of a history or political uh, lesson in this show. Um, I've already wasted about eight minutes, okay? But I just thought that it was pr appropriate to educate not only myself but all of you on on Juneteenth, the ramifications of it, and what you know what's going on in this country. So I hope they bring they start to bring it back. And they do make it a national holiday because I think it it, it very much should be. Um, so okay, let's continue on and let's let's get into this. Um, I have a lot to say today. Okay, it's going to be probably closer to an hour. The last one was a little bit shorter. Last week's episode. I have much to say about Jamal Adams and that's that saga that's going on right there. There's a lot going on in baseball the soap opera, the back and forth with the players union and, and the commissioner and the league, okay, and the owners, etc. But yeah, Jamal Adams, um, I don't want to spoil it just yet, but I, I wanted, I, I was so, I was fuming so much when the report came out yesterday, I didn't even go on Twitter and tweet anything out because I didn't even know what to do with myself. So I was saving it all for today and I'm ready to sound off on it when we get to that segment. 
So first, let's go to the NBA, and let's talk about my least favorite coach in the NBA, and that is Greg Popovich, because he loves to talk politics. Great coach, um, but I think he's getting a little senile in his old age. He loves to talk politics and sound off on the president and, and, and all this different stuff. And he's making, he's back at it with more jabs at the president, calling out Roger Goodell this time, speaking with New York Times over the weekend. And he said, a smart man is running the NFL, and he didn't understand the difference between the flag and what makes the country great. It's all the people who fought to allow Colin Kaepernick to have the right to kneel for justice. I'm pretty sure that that's not exactly true, but that's your opinion. The flag is irrelevant. I don't think so. It's just a symbol that people glom, uh, glom onto for political reasons. Roger Goodell got intimidated when Trump jumped on the kneeling and he folded. Okay, so just last week, Greg Popovich had this to say. Let me play this for you. The only reason this nation has made the progress it has is because of the persistence and patience and effort of black people. So it's got to be us, in my opinion, that speak truth to power, that call it out no matter what the consequences. Our country is in trouble. And the basic reason is race. Okay. So, let's break this down a little bit, right? The the kneeling versus the flag, right? They say they're not kneeling because of the disrespect of the flag. If that's the case, then why are you doing it during such a prestigious moment during an NFL game, during the national anthem, when most places not most places, everywhere that the national anthem is played, you look at a flag, okay? So by kneeling, okay, you are denouncing that, and you are saying that I don't support the freedoms of this country. I don't support those that fought for this country. And granted, um, I've had this conversation with friends and whatnot, and we butt heads on this because... Colin Kaepernick, everybody that kneels, they say it has nothing to do with the flag, but I say it does. So again, we're, we're just, we're at an impasse. It is what it is. So, um, I don't agree with Greg Popovich. I'm of, I'm more of the, uh, mindset of you're an NBA coach. I get you have your opinions, but it's awfully, what he's saying about Roger Goodell. I mean, that is, that is some harsh stuff. I mean, who are you to call out Roger Goodell like that? I know you're taking shots at Trump, but my God. Um, and for what it's worth, I, I think you should just retire, Pop, because at the rate uh, this coronavirus is going and, and the guidelines the league is putting into place for the resumption of the season, I don't think you're going to be even allowed on the sideline. So, um, yeah, I don't know what your job is anymore. Yeah. Anyway, okay, um, let's, let's keep it going. Late Friday night, just after episode 99 I finished up with, Kyrie Irving led a Zoom call with roughly 100 NBA players. I heard it was like 150, 100, 150, whatever it is. He was pleading with them to sit out the season. I think I talked a little bit about this last week as well. He, excuse me, he believes that the focus should be on racial injustice right now and not basketball. I just find it funny because Kyrie Irving is done for the season. He had shoulder surgery. He's done for the season. What does it matter to him? I mean, he's not even playing, so he could still lead that movement if he wants from his from home. Um, he believes that, yeah, sorry. Um, he's not alone in this, actually. And, and Dwight Howard, he spoke with CNN, and he said, I agree with Kyrie. I would love nothing more than to win my first championship but the unity of my people would be an even bigger championship. No basketball until we get things resolved. So what does that mean exactly? Will Dwight Howard not play? Because the Lakers have a really good chance to win a championship this year. His agent made it clear that it wasn't about making a statement that he doesn't care about basketball or that he's threatening not to play. It was he didn't want basketball to be the conversation period right now with what the country is going through. He wanted to let everyone know that his mind is on the racial injustice going on in this country. 
Basketball will be a discussion and it will be a decision further down the line. But right now, Dwight Howard wants to bring as much awareness as he can to what African-Americans are going through. That really doesn't clear anything up. I basically gather from that that, yes, Dwight Howard, he wants to play both sides and he wants to, you know, be there for the the uh, Black Lives Matter people as well as be there for his team. Okay, Patrick Beverly, he also weighed in on social media and he had some interesting words to say. Hoopers say what y'all want. If King James is hooping, we're all hooping, not personal, only business stay woke. Now, some took that at face value, but others thought it was a backhanded compliment. Now, if you know Patrick Beverly, he's a feisty little character um, and a fiery guy. I'm going to take it as the latter part that he, this was kind of a backhanded uh, compliment towards, uh, towards LeBron. So we'll see if anything comes of that. We know there's the whole Lakers-Clippers rivalry there, so maybe that has something to do with it as well. Now, uh, back to Kyrie Irving. We know he doesn't want the season to resume, okay? He has now formed a players' coalition. So this is a growing number of players that are uncertain about the league's restart plan, and it's all led by Kyrie. He's the driving force, as well as the Lakers' Avery Bradley. Now, they they want to... um, They have concerns around logistics and safety within the league, plus they're worried playing basketball will take away from the focus of the movement around racial injustice. Here's what Adam Silver had to say. To me, and when I've heard this loud and clear, the statements have been issued, foundations have been announced, contributions, but I think there's an expectation that there's more that this league can do, and I think part of it's going to require a fair amount of listening, something we've been doing already, but then engaging in very deliberate behavior together with the players in terms of, you know, how can we use sort of our larger platform in the NBA together with our players really to affect change? Um, well said. A lot of people think that Adam Silver is an amazing commissioner and he's doing great things, and I tend to agree, okay? Um, the NBA predominantly black players. So yes, they could do more and they can do, uh, you know, they could help out as well. Now it's interesting because Kyrie Irving, he has his opinions and what he thinks. And also I saw a different perspective from Austin Rivers, Doc Rivers' son, who's also an NBA player who said that, and I agree with this a little bit more, is that they need the NBA right now. People need the NBA, okay? They need it as a distraction, not to distract away from Black Lives Matter, but to distract from the, the, the rioting and the looting and the, just the setting stuff on fire and, and destroying cities, right? Like, that needs to stop, and that needs to come to an end. And if you put NBA basketball back on the big screen, you could have friends and family gather at each other's houses and watch games and root for your teams again and just feel that joy that is NBA basketball and sports as a whole. And he said even too, play, there's some players that aren't making $20 million a year or, or all, you know, there, there's, there's other players than LeBron and Anthony Davis and Steph Curry and Russell Westbrook and these guys that make lucrative contracts. You know, there's your lesser known players, right? Um, and so they need these paychecks, and they could use some of that money to help to help um, in different areas with communities and such. So I think it was well said by Austin Rivers, and I tend to absolutely agree. We need to we need to do something to put an end to the rioting and the looting. Okay, so you know the NBA is close to getting uh, back into the swing of things. They released a health and safety uh, guideline. It was about a 113-page document that focused on health and safety protocols for the bubble in Orlando. So players will have up until June 24th. So today is June 19th, Juneteenth. They have five more days remaining to let their teams know if they are going to to report, if they are willing to go risk their their health, you know, and, and play. There's some players that are maybe scared of contracting COVID and they don't want to risk it, 
and that's fine, and they can stay away. There are players that are more at risk. Now, I'm really curious to uh, see what's what some of those players that have maybe autoimmune diseases, um, like I have Crohn's, okay, and um, so so we'll see. I mean, I'm supposedly more susceptible. Luckily, I have not gotten it yet, but Larry Nance Jr. also has Crohn's disease. Granted, he is on the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he won't be participating because they are a terrible team, but um, I would have been curious to know, had his team been part of uh, the 22, if he would have been able to participate or not, because they are saying that the um, the players will be docked. I believe if they don't if they don't decide to report and play, they will have a reduction in salary that will be capped at fourteen games. So, however much they'll make over fourteen games, that's how much they lose if they don't go. So, really, the the it's tough to to to, to say right now that you're going to you're not going to go but when cu- push comes to shove are you really willing to give up 14 game checks uh, that's a lot of money so i don't know um players who are at risk like i said a larry nance junior type with a with a health issue they won't be penalized or docked pay now the info from this detailed memo should answer or it should have answered some of Kyrie Irving's uh, questions that players coalition However, Avery Bradley still has some concerns regarding social issues. He's yet to hear specific fine points from the league of exactly what they plan to do if they are making plans behind the scenes um, to make racial justice, to make Black Lives Matter, to make conversations around police police brutality continue within the bubble. And so while he doesn't think the league is adverse to that in any way, he's waiting for a concrete plan because he hasn't heard that yet from the league office or from team owners. Okay, now... The idea of when they first brought up this idea of players are going to be secluded in this bubble, they're going to be away from families for upwards of what, 60 days plus, right? Before family can can then go there and attend or visit them and stay there. That looked like a grim report, right? It looked like, oh God, I mean, some of these guys, I don't know if they can handle it being away from family, isolated for that long. Well... It might not seem so bad now. The league let the players know they've got them covered with plenty of cushy amenities to hold them over and um, make that time go by just a little bit faster. Some of the highlights include a players-only lounge, 24-hour VIP concierge, and loads of daily entertainment, including DJ sets. Can we get some quarantine radio, maybe some Instagram live from some of these players with those uh, with those DJ sets? That would be fun stuff. And I'm sure we're going to get some Instagram lives uh, from, you know, players in, in this bubble, you know, playing around uh, ping pong and pool and who knows, all sorts of all sorts of cool stuff. Um, so I look forward to to that aspect of things. And, and you know, that should that should help them ease the pain of it a little bit. And of course, when in doubt, there's always FaceTime. You want to see your kids, your family, just a FaceTime call away. And the icing on the, t- uh, on the cake here is that players can also attend other teams' games. So, you know, that's good too, to know too. Okay, let's talk NASCAR now. You have the Homestead Miami Speedway. This was the first race where fans were allowed. So they let 1,000 fans in attendance. And one famous face was there, and that was Alvin Kamara, who recently uh, talked about it and has become a huge fan of Bubba Wallace, who has been in the news of late as the only black racer in NASCAR, and he's been instrumental in the changes that have undergone, have been undertaken in NASCAR, the removing of the Confederate flag and, and all that sort of stuff, and implementing the Black Lives Matter on his car, so he was there supporting his buddy now. The race, though, it had to be stopped for nearly three hours due to a lightning delay. We picked this one up thir- with 30 laps left to go. Chase Elliott is in the lead, but not for long. Denny Hamlin gets creative using the draft, excuse me, the wind draft off the back of Joey Logano. It pushes him into first. 
and he would not let up. It was a valiant effort for Elliott to try to catch him, but he holds off, and Denny Hamlin is your winner, his third career win at Homestead. That's your NASCAR update. Now let's talk some golf. Finally, we had some golf, the Charles Schwab Challenge. I actually played a round of golf on Sunday myself. I got home just in time to catch the end, and it was a it was a really good one. Uh, you had Daniel Berger and Colin Morikawa locked locked up and loaded. Had to go to a playoff. Morikawa had a chance to win it, but he missed a a, a makeable putt, so they did go to a playoff. And uh, two young. Young up and coming golfers in the sport, right? Uh, they both had to draw out of a hat to see who would tee off first. I believe it was Berger, and uh, they had to play. I believe I want to say it was the seventeenth hole. So Berger was up first. He 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 was in a little bit of trouble, but his chip shot onto the green was beautiful. He makes it up and down for par, and now you have Morikawa, who all he has to do is make about a four foot putt to uh, par the hole and, you know, extend the playoff. And what do you know? He lips out. And it was the exact same hole that, um, oh, shoot, somebody else that was right in line that would have made the playoff had he made that putt as well, uh, lipped out. as I can't believe it's slipping my mind. Oh, um, uh, oh, shoot. The name is on the tip of my tongue, too. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so Morikawa loses in a heartbreaker, and Berger gets the win. It was, for Berger, his third career PGA Tour victory. Now let's talk about the RBC Heritage, which is taking place in Hilton Head, South Carolina. That got underway yesterday. Jordan Spieth, he had a solid comeback in in, um, in the in the Charles Schwab Challenge. He has, it, he has been struggling for about three years right now, and he had a chance to have his first 52-hole lead since 2017. Of course, he fell just short um, on Sunday over the weekend, but he had a really rough start at Hilton Head, and he triple bogeyed the first hole. Uh, Coming back from a triple bogey, I mean, at least you, you have to have the mindset of, well, it can't get much worse from here. I have 17 more holes left to go. Let's see what I can do. And his back nine was absolutely superb he had I believe seven birdies six in a row he finished with a five under 66 but he was actually not the leader that goes to Ian Poulter who had the hot hand finishing tied atop the leaderboard with Mark Hubbard at seven under so speed just a couple shots back there let's pick it up with today's leaderboard which looks drastically different okay that's the beauty of golf you could play great one day and the next day not so good, and you're all the way at the bottom of the leaderboard. So you have Webb Simpson. He's atop the leaderboard at 12 under. He's nothing if not consistent. Shot a, a 65 yesterday and a 65 today. You have Bryson DeChambeau and Corey Connors are one back. If you've been following golf a little bit, you know the story about Bryson DeChambeau. Throughout quarantine, he has added weight, and I saw a picture of him today. He is. He not only has added weight, they try to say he's added muscle and he's hitting the ball farther. No, 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 no. He has a beer belly, guys. This man is now fat. So, I mean, wow. Uh, golf is really the only sport where you could be just seriously out of shape and, and you, could, you could be great. I mean, look what John Daly used to do. And the fact of the matter is, DeChambeau, it, 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 whatever he's doing, uh, I'm not going to say it's not working, but... I don't think he could sustain like his diet is clearly consisting of like Chick-fil-A and McDonald's every day. I I don't understand what he's been eating that he put on like 40 pounds since since March. Um, Let's let's talk about the latest 30 for 30 that aired on Sunday. It was a great one. Long Gone Summer, which chronicled the 1998 season in which Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa brought back brought baseball back from the depths of hell, essentially, because if you remember back to uh, the 94 season, that's when America's pastime was truly reeling because of the strike. McGuire absolutely crushed Roger Maris's single-season home run record. He launched 70 long balls. Sammy Sosa wasn't far behind. They were going back and forth. He would finish with 66, and he did not get the home run uh, crown, 
that year, but he did walk away with the MVP, did Sosa. A lot of people forget that. You only remember McGuire breaking the record with 70 home runs, a whopping 70 home runs. And the best part of all of that, McGuire's 70th home run baseball was sold for a whopping $3 million at auction. Not a bad day's work for that fan. Probably didn't realize what he had on his, you know, what he had at the time. Now, it's very interesting because the Cardinals initially, you know, when there's a milestone home run ball like that, they try to go to the fan and get the ball back. Well, they offered the fan a signed bat, a signed ball, and a signed jersey. Are you kidding me? The fan wanted to meet Mark McGuire. Like, that to me is not a totally unreasonable request. However, the Cardinals declined. So, hey, he sold the ball and made a quick $3 million. I don't blame him for that. Now, I pose this question. If you were in the same situation, would you keep that ball knowing you could sell it for millions? Or would you do the right thing and would you give him the baseball back? Because earlier in in the 30 for 30 special, there was a grounds crew member who, a young kid, he, he got one of the home run balls, knew it was a milestone, and he saved it, but he ended up giving it back in a little ceremony and uh, he gave it to him and shook his hand. So uh, normally I would say, no matter, like, I'm giving that baseball back. I mean, if Derek Jeter hits his 3,000th home run and, I'm, and I catch it, which, funny story, I was supposed to be at his 3,000th uh, hit game. It got rained out the night before, so they moved it to the next day, obviously. The game, you know, they canceled that game, and then the next day, I don't have tickets to that game. He gets, you know, 5 for 5. His 3,000th is a home run off of, uh, you know, David Price in his first at-bat. And it was like, wow, yep, I could have been at that game. I could have witnessed history. But yeah, if I had that ball, it's like easy to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to give that right back. But then once you're in that situation, man, I don't know. Knowing it's worth so much, it, it, it's a tough call. So I, I wonder what you guys would do. It's, it's truly a, a moral dilemma. Okay, let's talk baseball. Um, it truly has been a soap opera. It's the one major sport that we've been waiting for, and every day it, it, it changes. I mean, seriously, this is, a, this is a soap opera situation we have on our hands. So let me give you another timeline of what's going on this week because I'm sure none of you can follow it. It's been messy. Okay, Rob Manfred originally said weeks ago, or two weeks ago, that he was confident baseball was coming back. I mean, he went as far as uh, to pull a Joe Namath and guarantee, like Joe Na- like and, and guaranteed that we would have baseball. He said 100% that he's confident we're going to have baseball. Well, on Monday he changed tunes. He told ESPN that he's now not confident that we will have a 2020 season. He said in the uh, he said, excuse me, the players, the players' union's decision, the union's decision to. And good faith negotiations was a negative aspect in bargaining. He also said the union's delayed progress on health and safety protocols didn't help. Well, let me just, let, let's just hear from him himself. Well, I know the owners are 100% committed to getting baseball back on the field. Um, unfortunately, I can't tell you that I'm 100% certain that's going to happen. I'm not confident. I think there's real risk, and um, as long as there's no dialogue, that real risk is going to continue. It's just a disaster for our game. Um, absolutely no question about it. It, it shouldn't be happening, um, and it's important that we find a way to get past it and get the game back on the field for the benefit of our fans. I really don't know if we will get past it, but the Players Association was not happy with those comments from Manfred. They released a statement saying, players are disgusted that Rob Manfred unequivocally told players and fans that there would 100% be a season, and he's decided to go back on his word. This has always been about extracting additional payouts from players, and this is just another day and another bad faith tactic in their ongoing campaign. I mean, at this point, get rid of Manfred, get rid of Tony Clark. Neither of them is getting the job done. We need baseball. We cannot have a situation where there is not a baseball season. It's absurd. So for more on this, let's hear what uh, Jeff Passan has to say. 
This is a fight. This is a big fight. This is the kind of fight that we haven't seen since baseball went on strike in 1994 and lost the World Series. We are either going to have a season, and it's going to be a longer season than expected, or they are going to cancel the season altogether and face a grievance because of that. Either way, baseball does not look good right now, and this interview only added to what has been a, an awful two months for the sport trying to get back and return to play. I mean, this is awful. You could hear the pessimism in everybody's voice. Nobody thinks we're going to have a season right now. On Tuesday, after all of this, day goes by, some of the league's biggest stars, and I mean the absolute biggest, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, and Garrett Cole all tweeted the same thing. This is clearly directed right at Manfred. They said, tell us when and where. Yeah, as if they're ready to play right now. Um, I, I don't know, but Mike Trout, is usually a quiet guy, best player in the game, that stays behind the scenes. And for him to come out and say this, wow, this is getting ugly. Okay, very ugly. Now, so far, there have been five different proposals that have come and gone. MLB then sent another proposal to the Players Association for a 60-game season with full pro-rated pay, which is all that the players have wanted this entire time, right? Well, I guess not because um, according to this 60-game season that they proposed, the regular season would start on July 19th and would be completed in 70 days. They would also, I believe, be expanding the playoffs, which is what they wanted, a universal DH, which is what the players wanted. They're not going to be happy with the 60 games. I can tell you that right now. They're not happy with the 60 games. They're not happy with the way that this information has come out. But you also don't want to get let that get in the way of the ultimate goal here, which is to play. You know, the idea is that they're going to end up somewhere in the high 60s, low 70s. And that is the hope, I think, for everybody involved. So they're not happy with the 60 games. This is all about money. They're not ready to play. This is about money because why the union then took that 60 game offer and they turned it around and said they want 70 games with full prorated salaries. They're talking 10 game difference. I mean, granted, I would want more game. I want more games too, just as a fan, but come on 10 games. Like, what are we doing? We need to start this up. We need a season. Just take the 60 games. Well, According to the Players Association, they believe each game is worth about $25 million to the players, meaning the gap between the two proposals between the 10 games is roughly worth $250 million. So like I said, this is all about money. Rob Manford went on to warn the union and Tony Clark saying, I told Tony Clark 70 games was simply impossible given the calendar and the public health situation. And he went ahead and made that proposal anyway. We're committed to doing whatever's necessary to play, hopefully by agreement. Well, you're clearly not in agreement. You told him no, and he still did it. So what is going on? I don't understand the disconnect. Well, yeah, I do. The disconnect is money. And it's always been about money. And it's the only sport that can't come to an agreement. And the problem with all of this now is the season is going to end up somewhere about uh, middle of um, beginning, middle of October, where it would end. And there's always a concern, they've been saying, about a playoffs, the, uh, the playoffs being canceled. Well, according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the leading infectious disease expert on coronavirus, he has been telling the NFL and he's been making statements that he believes that October is going to be a horrible second wave of this virus that's going to hit. Okay, um, so that's a little bit scary. Florida has seen a spike. More on that in a bit. Uh, over 3,000 cases there in Florida just, I think, yesterday. Uh, so this is not good stuff. And um, I don't know if we're going to have a baseball season. I simply don't. But when you look at it, like I said, I would want more games too as a fan. But at this point, I don't care. I just want baseball. So if it has to be less games for, for the sake of the sport, then make it less games. The players need to compensate here. I mean, come on. Isn't, less game, isn't some baseball better than none? There's a chance this could be good. 60 games. Every game matters. Everyone has a chance. 16 teams in the playoffs. A complete free-for-all. It's like March Madness. 
this could be good for baseball unless baseball doesn't allow it to happen. Tim Kirkshin is absolutely right. Imagine a free-for-all. If you play 60 games, every game does matter, okay? You're not going to rest guys. You're not going to be resting Gary Sanchez every couple games like they do, okay? Um, and this could be the year that any of these 16 teams win. You Who knows, right? So every team has that opportunity, and that's what they're missing out on. But hopefully, hopefully, hopefully a deal gets done. So that's where we sit at right now, and who knows? Next week... I'm sorry, but if they don't get something done by next week, I think we're in big-time trouble here, and I think the season will be canceled. Okay, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about the NFL. Ezekiel Elliott has tested positive for coronavirus. He's joined by a small number of teammates and a few players from the Texans. According to his agent, he is feeling good, so that's, that's nice to hear. Health is most important. It is unclear, though, how they got the virus, considering the NFL's offseason program has been taking place virtually and not at team facilities, although it's quite obvious Texas has seen a huge spike in cases. A lot of these states have Arizona, Florida. Um, Roger Goodell, he recently encouraged Colin Kaepernick's return right to the league. This has been a big uh, focus point. Um, with many of these Black Lives Matters protests and the talk about how Kaepernick should be allowed back in the in the league, right? Well, naturally, somebody asked President Trump about this. They posed the question on what he thought about Kaepernick because Trump has been outspoken against kneeling in the NFL. Here's what Trump, interestingly enough, had to say. If he deserves it, he should. If he has the playing ability, his playing wasn't up to snuff. The answer is absolutely I would. As far as kneeling, I would love to see him get another shot, but obviously he has to be able to play well. If he can't play well, I think it would be very unfair. I happen to agree with that statement. You know, if he's capable of playing, sure, give him another shot. Why not? It's not like he broke the law or did anything criminal. Now, he hasn't played since 2016. I found a, well, I didn't find a clip. I knew of it. But back then in 2016, there is a clip. You can go and find it. Buffalo Bills running back, LaShawn McCoy, was interviewed, and he basically had some of these same sentiments, that Kaepernick isn't in the league because he, and that wouldn't have been 2016, it was probably late, uh, more recent, but he said that he's not in the league, not because of his kneeling and the protesting, but simply because he's just not that good, and teams don't want to deal with that distraction. You could go look it up. It's on YouTube if you'd like. And he was right then, and I think Trump is right now. But if you look back to Kaepernick, he last played four years ago. That is a long time, okay? Mike Vick didn't even, uh, wasn't even out of the game for that long. He was only out of the game for like two years when he had to go to jail for the dogfighting. And then he came back, and he was a beast. But Kaepernick is a little bit different. I don't truly believe that he wants a chance to play in the NFL. I've talked about this. He had the workout, and then he changed the venue at the last second, so basically nobody could come. He made a mockery of it. He had a chance to play in the AAF, and he turned it down because he wanted more money. He, he's been diva. He's been, he's been acting like a diva. So um, is there a possibility a team gives him a chance? Yes, I think it would be a ploy, a political ploy, a ploy to uh, put butts into the seats if there are fans in this 2020 NFL season, a team like maybe the Chargers. I know Anthony Lynn has had um, some interesting comments on this situation because right now they have just Tyrod Taylor as the veteran and then uh, rookie and Justin Herbert, who they drafted with the sixth overall pick. Okay, so it, it's, it, it's very interesting um, to think about this. And I just find it hard to believe that he will get signed when a guy like Cam Newton is still on the market and has not been added to a team. So, I mean, if Cam can't find a job, there's no way Kaepernick is getting a job. And if you look just simply based on his talent, back in 2016 when he last played, he completed just over 52% of his passes, which is mediocre. He threw 16 touchdowns in 12 games. That's not very good either. He also averaged, yes, yeah, 6.8 yards per carry. He's always been a good runner. Um, and yes, he took the 49ers to a Super Bowl, but he just isn't that wasn't that good of a player and I don't think he still is okay now 
I spoke about Fauci just a little bit, but he had a really grim report for the NFL yesterday. Specifically, he had this to say, unless players are essentially in a bubble, insulated from the community, and they are tested nearly every day, it would be very hard to see how football is able to be played this fall. So I think after that, they let it simmer for a day. I saw a report earlier, the NFL is reconsidering this whole bubble thing now. Um, According to ESPN's Jeremy Fowler, excuse me, Players have been told they can be tested possibly every three days. Now, Rams head coach Sean McVay was on a Zoom call or whatever uh, video conference with Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn, and he was pretty blunt about, about, about all this. I mean, is this crazy, Coach Lynn? We're talking about some of this stuff, and we're playing football. I mean, we're going to social distance, but we play football? Hey, it's, it's just, this is really hard for me to understand all this. I don't want to be, uh, I I just, I I don't get it. I really don't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get it either. You cannot play football or really any sport and actively social distance. It's just not possible. They're talking in the NBA like players can't touch their mouthpieces now. They're not going to be allowed to rub the ball with their jersey. I mean, this is all, this is crazy. What are you going to do every time a a player like licks his fingers? You're going to have to get him out or give him some hand sanitizer, call a timeout, uh, throw in a new ball. I, I just don't get it. And football especially. I mean, it's crazy. You have ringworm that runs rampant in locker rooms, in football locker rooms. You're telling me you're going to be able to prevent the coronavirus because um, I just saw a report today, University of Clemson Athletics, out of about 315 players and personnel, 23 of them, or 318 maybe, 23 of them, less than 10%. It's not a bad number, but by numbers, it doesn't look good. They tested positive for coronavirus. This is exactly what's going to happen when you bring these people into close quarters. You cannot socially distance, especially in sports, really. And this this is not good. This is not good. Okay, now let's get to the real the real um, the real issue in the elephant in the room. This is my hundredth episode. I just wanted to breeze through this, you know, have a nice, clean, easygoing day, easy episode. And then yesterday hits, and I find out that Jamal Adams is going at it with the Twitter fingers, and he's on Instagram, and he's, and he's back and forth with a fan. I mean, just shut up already, first of all. But this is, this is the new wave of, of, of social media and players and interaction. And he tells a fan, he makes a comment to a fan, and then a couple hours later... Boom, you get Adam Schefter tweeting that Jamal Adams has formally requested a trade from the New York Jets, and he listed seven teams that he would accept a trade to, and those seven teams are as follows. The Ravens, the Chiefs, the Texans, the 49ers, the Seahawks, Cowboys, and Eagles. We all know, dating back to the trade deadline last year, the Cowboys and Ravens were the two, the two teams that were pursuing him the most, namely the Cowboys, because that's, you know, he's from, he's from um, Texas, and maybe he wants to go home. And they were the team that offered a first-round pick, but the Jets apparently wanted two second-round picks to go along with that. If you want to trade him to the Cowboys for C.D. Lamb and a first-rounder and maybe Jalen Smith, hell, I'll do that. Because there is no doubt in my mind that Jamal Adams is the number one best safety in the league. The problem is, guys, he plays safety, okay? And that is not a premium position. Now, the Jets drafted Ashton Davis in the third round out of Cal to to replace Marcus May, their other safety, from the same draft class who was their second round pick because they were expecting to lose Marcus May after this season because he could walk after three years, whereas um, Jamal Adams is under contract through 2021. So really, he has no leverage here. Yes, I get it. He wants to get paid right now. But the fact of the matter is the Jets have all the cards. They have a new safety in Ashton Davis they just drafted. He might not, he's probably not going to amount to a Jamal Adams, but if Jamal Adams walks, or they, excuse me, if they trade Jamal Adams, or he decides to sit out the season, pull a Le'Veon Bell, then at least they have Ashton Davis as a backup plan. Okay, 
I get he wants a new contract. He wants to be paid as the top uh, safety in the league. Right now, that's Derwin James, uh, not Derwin James, Eddie Jackson at $14.6 million. So naturally, he's looking for somewhere about $15 million a year, Jamal Adams. You have to pay Sam Darnold at the end of next year and redo his contract. Sam Darnold is the franchise as of right now, not Jamal Adams. So as good as Jamal Adams is, he plays the position of safety, and I'm sorry, that's just not the a premium position. He is a team captain for the New York Jets. He needs to lead by example. Your team captain doesn't hold out like this, doesn't refuse to go to voluntary workouts. No, the team captain is the one that's there first and leaves last every day. That's how you set an example for the young guys, for the rookies, for the guys that are trying to, you know, bouncing around the league, that are trying to make it, that come to a team and think that they could disrespect the organization, disrespect you. There is too much going on in this organization for this to be happening. The Jets are on the come up. They're not there yet, but Tom Brady's out of the division. This this AFC East division is now up for grabs. You're going to put the Bills at the top of the list because they were in the playoffs last year. But I'm sorry, after that, the Jets are the second best team in the division, in my opinion, okay? Or they can be. I, excuse me, I'm not going to discredit the, the Patriots just yet. Okay, I think that, honestly, the way the Bills organization is, I would not be surprised if they have a letdown year. Um, the Jets could have beat them to start the year at week one last year, and of course things fell apart with the mono and all that. But listen, let's be real. We're not going to kid ourselves and say that the Jets are Super Bowl bound with the second worst schedule in the NFL. Now, the Patriots have the worst schedule in the NFL, so that's why I do give the Jets a fighting chance this year. They, de- they drafted uh, Mekhi Becton. They drafted Denzel Mims. Okay, the pieces are there. This is Joe Douglas's first full year, so I don't understand, quite frankly, what Jamal Adams is thinking and doing because this team is on the rise and on the come-up. They finished the season 6-2 and two last year, one of the best records in the league. They were able to finish with an amazing record after a 1-8 and eight poorest start to the year, okay? We don't know if Adam Gase will make it in this, uh, you know, with the Jets. This is his make-it-or-break-it year. Okay, but I truly believe that Sam Darnold will make a huge step forward and will be possibly the most improved player in the NFL. The key, obviously, is that offensive line. Now, the Jets' defense is led by Greg Williams. He touches that defense, and that's it. And they were a top 10 defense, I think ranked about number five last year. And Jamal Adams was a big part in that. And yes, he doesn't just play safety. He takes a lot of snaps at other positions. He even took three snaps on the defensive line last year. I I do my research. I know these things. I believe that the Jets are going to hold firm. I know they have all the leverage, and I don't think they're going to trade him unless a team like the Cowboys offers them, you know, everything in the kitchen sink. But now the thing about the the Dallas Cowboys that you have to realize is they're still in negotiations with Dak Prescott. So really— Jamal Adams is got, it has to just wait for everything to pan out. Now, come July, when they start meeting at, team, at facilities, okay, and for training camps and, stu- and such, if Jamal Adams doesn't show up then, okay, we might have a, 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 a bigger issue on our hands, and he might seriously be considering holding out. I believe the Jets do want to pay him. They've said as much. They don't want to get rid of him. They, they want him to be a Jet for life, okay? And I do too. I have his jersey hanging up on my door behind me. And I swear to God, if they trade him because he wanted out, I will burn that damn thing and I will film it live on my Instagram account because I, I'm just disgusted with this. The, last year, they, fought, they take calls on him at the trade deadline. You're a GM. You're an organization. That is what you do. He was disrespected by it. Okay, well, how do you show leadership skills, okay? What, you just, you, 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 you're going to sit there and you're going to pout and, and you're going to, you know, you're going to go on social media and, and trade barbs with, with stupid fans? I mean, come on. He asked for a trade yesterday, and then I see posts of him on a golf course, and, and his swing looks like damn Charles Barkley. I mean, give that, give Charles Barkley his swing back. Charles called up and he said, I want my swing back. I mean, what are you doing? That look, it just looks horrible. It looks absolutely horrible. You need to be a leader. And uh, some people just don't have the gall. They don't have the stones for New York. 
But I'm telling you right now, Bart Scott said it either yesterday or today. I heard him on the radio. You win in New York, man. I mean, there's nothing else like winning in New York. New York is it, man. It is the Big Apple. That's where you dreams come true. You win in New. Look at Eli Manning. He practically has a statue built of himself because he won not once but twice. Don't you want to be a part of that? A part of that rebuild and that growth? Because this is one of the best young, talented teams in the league. And give it a couple years, this team could possibly be competing and be competitive again. They haven't made the playoffs since 2010. That's going to turn around, quite frankly, very soon. All right? So I'm just over it. I'm disgusted by all this. But I'm not going to hit the, the, the super panic button just yet. Because the Jets could end up finding out, you know, there's a pandemic going on right now. Money is tight, all right? They're not going to pay him if they don't think there's going to be a season just yet, right? So there's plenty of time to work this out. I think the problem with these young players is they, they always wanted, they always think that they're deserving more so than other people or they want their dues and they want it now. And a part of me has to wonder just a tiny bit if this has anything to do with Jamal Adams' dad who played for the New York Giants. Maybe he's telling him to just get out of New York because I'm sure he's telling him to, to, get his, to get his paycheck now, to get paid now because, you know, his father didn't get that opportunity because he ended up getting hurt. And so maybe that's playing in the back of his head and he's seen that with other guys. So I don't know. But all I know is that this is not good, but what I hear is that the New York Jets are holding firm. They have no intention to trade him. I think both sides are pretty dug in. I don't think the Jets want to trade him. I don't think their stance has changed by today's developments. And I think Jamal is a is a strong guy. He's he's a strong man of his convictions. And I don't. I just feel he thinks he's really been slighted by the Jets, and he wants he wants to be paid big big money. Listen, the Jets have had double-digit first-round picks, okay, in the last uh, top 10 picks, I believe, in the last, like, decade-plus or whatever, right? The last 14 years or so. Jamal Adams is the only all-pro and the only guy to make multiple Pro Bowls. So I get how good of a player he is. I just told you, I think he's the best safety in the league. He could have set the sack record for safeties if he didn't get hurt last year. I'm not discrediting that. But if he wants out and you could get a haul for him from the Dallas Cowboys, like I mentioned, a couple first round picks, you know, they need receiver help. They've always needed receiver help. I think offense is the key. Their defense wasn't really an issue last year. Offense was dreadful. They need to up the offensive weapons. You've got young Denzel Mims right now, but he's still young. you got, you know, Jamison Crowder. He could get hurt at any time. You just never know. Okay, they need to get better receivers. So I think, yes, getting, first, getting draft picks is fine and dandy, but that doesn't help them this year. And I think that Joe Douglas is sort of looking at that. And that's why he is holding firm on this, and he has made moves this offseason that help the future of this team. He's not gone out and added any big-name, splashy players, not a Jadavian Clowney type, because he probably knows that this team isn't built for the here and now. This is, built, this is a team that is built for the next two to three, maybe five years to make their run. Okay, let's talk a little college uh, football. The Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State running back Chuba Hubbard he tweeted on Monday that he won't be doing, excuse me, anything with his team until things change. Now, this is a big-name player in college football, rushed for well over 2,000 yards, had a monster season, right? So what did he mean by that he's, you know, what's going on? What's the discord with his team? Well, he attached a photo to this tweet of his coach, Mike Gundy, wearing an OAN t-shirt, which, again, I'm a little ignorant to this these things, but it stands for... One American News, which is a far-right news organization that's been known to promote conspiracy theories. Okay, so what did Hubbard have to say? He said this, I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything that's going on in society, and it's unacceptable. A few hours later, he posted this video of him and head coach Mike Gundy. Well, we had a great meeting and uh, made aware of some things that... Uh, Players feel like that can make our organization or our culture even better than it is here at Oklahoma State. 
and I'm looking forward to making some changes. And it starts at the top with me, and we got good days ahead. I should have went to him as a man, and I'm all, I'm more about action. So that was bad on my part. But from now on, we're going to focus on bringing change, and that's the most important thing. Yeah. So like I said, these players these days. They react before they think, and he goes on Twitter, and and it's unacceptable to blast an authoritative figure like that. Your head coach, um, I just think that was that was that was not right. He should have talked to him first. He understood that. He apologized, and then on Tuesday, Mike Gundy did the apologizing because Mike Gundy has been in the news more than once over the last few weeks. I want to apologize to all members of our team, former players and their families for the pain and discomfort that has been caused over the last two days. Black lives matter to me. Our players matter to me. These meetings with our team have been eye-opening and will result in positive changes for Oklahoma State football. Now, Paul Feinbaum thinks this situation might signify a massive change in the landscape of college football. College football coaches are autocratic leaders. Uh, they don't care what their players think. If they don't listen today, they will not succeed. That goes for Nick Saban. That goes for Mike Gundy. That goes for every college football coach in, in this country. This is a significant, uh, a watershed moment, I think, in college football because it's not, go it's not going back the other way, I can assure you. I do happen to agree with that statement. Now, let's move along. Uh, we're, we're at the end of this thing here. We'll be about our five minutes. The U.S. Open is set to pl take place in New York on August 31st. It will be the first tennis major since the sport was suspended in March. So this is probably the last sport that's going to resume in, in August. Now, the tourney got a huge jolt on Wednesday when Serena Williams announced she was, in fact, going to be playing. It's been over six months since a lot of us have played professional tennis, so it is, uh, I'll certainly miss the fans, don't get me wrong, just being out there in that New York crowd and hear everyone cheer, like, I'll really miss that and getting me through some of those tough matches. Now for Serena, it has been 1,237 days since she won a major. You have to go all the way back to the 2017 Australian Open. She is one Grand Slam away from tying Margaret Court for the all-time record with 24. So all eyes should be glued on this U.S. Open in August, um, at the end of August, because if she gets it, she will be making history. Okay, let's, t let's move it right along. Last, last bit here on this date in sports. So today marks the four-year anniversary of... Cleveland winning its first sports title since 1964. Cavaliers trying to win their first NBA championship. Two of the greatest Warriors in the world. And that's game seven. Game seven. This is the all-time, all-time high. Oracle Arena is alive and roaring. An entire NBA season coming down to one final quarter to decide a champion. Inside, pulls it up, misses, rebound taken by Iguodala. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup, oh, blocked by James! LeBron James with the rejection! As we come up on a minute and a half remaining. It was 89-89. I just tried to live in it. Irving and Curry, one-on-one, -on -one. Irving puts it up, it's good! City of Champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. Cleveland! This is for you! Oh! A little bit about that real quick. That was in Oracle. The Cavs had been down three games to one in the series. I am a firm believer that was the 73-win uh, Warriors team that broke the Jordan uh, Bulls record. I'm a firm believer if Andrew Bogut didn't get hurt and if Draymond Green, that stupid ass, didn't get the technical foul and have to miss, what was it, game five, then I, I truly believe the Warriors would have won that championship. Um, with that being said, LeBron didn't win that championship. It was Kyrie Irving making that shot. And hey, 
uh, when next season resume, when we get to next year with KD and Kyrie, I'm hoping he can make that shot for the Brooklyn Nets and, and hoist a trophy and, and win us an NBA championship. With that being said, guys, last couple things here. You've got some cool stuff on this weekend. Tomorrow, about 5.45 p.m. Eastern time, you have the Belmont Stakes. They are doing it differently this year. The Belmont is now the first leg of the Triple Crown because of the pandemic. So don't forget the Belmont. You could, you could, uh, I don't I don't even know who's which horses are racing in this to be honest. Um so you could check that out. You could probably bet on it. E60 on Sunday, Father's Day. This is one you don't want to miss at 12 o'clock, 12 noon. You have a special on Marquise Goodwin. He is now a member of the Philadelphia Eagles, one of the fastest players in the NFL. Him and his wife have been working as advocates for parents that have suffered the loss of a child. This hits home for them because the Goodwins have lost three children themselves. You can, like I said, you can watch it Sunday, 12 p.m. It's going to be a tearjerker. I saw some clips of it, and it's like unbelievable. He lost um, a child, and that same day, his wife um, told him he didn't want to play, but his wife wanted him to play. And he scored an epic 83-yard touchdown. It's just, it's eerie, it's scary, and I, I did not even know this about him. And it's sad, and it's, and it's, it's insane. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be watching that. Everybody should watch that, especially if you're a father. So um, there's that to look forward to. And then Sunday at 9 p.m., you have the ESPYs. I didn't even realize we were at this point in time, but yes, the ESPYs are here. They will be hosted by Sue Bird. Megan Rapino and Russell Wilson. These are some of the things that we need to distract ourselves, keep our keep us inside, stop the, the the violence, stop, you know, the looting and the rioting and all that good stuff. So again, Sunday is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all those fathers out there. Let's enjoy it. Okay. And with that being said, happy 100th episode of This Week in Sports. I am the Pody signing out. I'll see everybody next week.